okay, we've, we've seen that Israel had this tradition of the elders, um, all these laws and that which didn't come from the word of God and which went against, from, against the word of God and um, compiled eventually into the Mishnah and then the Talmud. And uh, what we're going to look at now is going to ask the question, okay, what was the reaction of Jesus to this? Because if we can understand something of how Jesus responded to what I'm defining as anti-biblical traditions. These are not neutral things. Uh, if we can see how Jesus responded uh, to, to anti-biblical traditions that Israel had, then this might give us a clue as to kind of how we ought to be feeling, uh, should it be, heaven forbid, that we find the Christian church has some as well. Um, but what I want to do is, is, is to show you first something that people don't realise. Um, and I want to demonstrate to you that when Israel rejected and crucified Jesus, they did so knowing, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that he was their Messiah. And I can at least in this talk blow out of the water this idea that there might have been any doubt about it. Israel knew. They didn't think here's a possibility. Israel knew beyond doubt, the religious leaders knew beyond doubt that Jesus was their Messiah. And I'm going to show you, and it's astounding, and it's all to do with the tradition of the elders. Now, firstly, you'll remember in Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6, don't, don't bother to turn to it, but there was the occasion when John the Baptist had been thrown into prison by Herod, and he, he was going through a a bit of a bad time and you remember he sent his disciples he was in prison and his disciples came to Jesus and said look John John wants to know uh, are you the one who is to come or do we wait for another so John and I can I can understand this John's sitting there in prison uh, he hasn't seen how Jesus's ministry is developing and he's thinking have I got this wrong oh my goodness am I he probably knew he was going to die and he's probably thinking oh goodness have I got all this wrong have I thrown my life away blah 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 and so his disciples came to Jesus and said look are you the one you remember that Jesus said, go and tell John what you see. And then he quotes Isaiah 35 to them. You know, the lame walk and the poor have good news, preach the bubble. So the point is that, 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 that when, when, Jesus did, uh, when Jesus did that, he expected John the Baptist and anyone else to know that he was the Messiah purely on the basis of fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So we see quite clearly Jesus expected everyone to know he was the Messiah purely because of the way he was fulfilling prophecy in the Old Testament. But the killer here is to understand that Pharisaic Judaism in all these traditions of the elders, the traditions of the elders were to do with laws, they were to do with practices. But the, the, that whole process had gone further than just that. And if you like, a theology had developed around all this. And so there were, there were teachings which hadn't come from the Old Testament, but which were again seen to be inspired of God. And let me tell you that there was a teaching in Pharisaic Judaism um, that outlined various ways, and, and, and this is outside of the scripture, but outlined various ways that Israel would know when Messiah had come. So there was Old Testament prophecy, but Pharisaic Judaism had developed further than that and taught certain, you know, here's how we'll recognise the Messiah. 
And one of the reasons that um, they gave was this. They taught that there were two categories of miracle. Obviously Israel, not the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were like the modernists. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in a physical afterlife, anything like that. So with the Sadducees, think of it, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife and in heaven. So that's how far I see. The Sadducees didn't. So they were Sadducee. And that's, that's the way to remember it. But apart from the Sadducees, obviously um, Israel, as, 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 you know, I mean, was the nation that believed in miracles. And so therefore they said there were two types of miracle. Now the first category of miracle is, uh, are, are miracles that anyone can perform if so the Spirit of God enables them to. So, so there was a category of miracle that, that God might do through anyone. But where they built on the Old Testament teaching was that they taught that there were what they called messianic signs. And they taught that there were certain miracles that can only be done by Messiah. So if you see these miracles, guys, it's got to be Messiah. Now, we're going to look at three of them. Now, the first one I want to draw your attention to, and I expect, I hope, after the end of this talk, that you'll find that you understand the Gospels in a way you've never done before. A million things in them will make sense that don't at the moment to you. Now, under the Mosaic Law, there was only one way that you could become ceremonially unclean by simply touching a live body. You could become unclean if you touched a dead body, but there was only one way that you could become ceremonially unclean by touching someone. And that was if that someone you touched was a leper. Now, obviously, for reasons that we don't need to expound on, just the danger and the spread of leprosy, uh, lepers were isolated uh, from the nation of Israel. They were provided for, but they were kept away from contact with other people. Now, <clears throat> in Leviticus 13, you have instructions given to the priest. This is all written down in the Law of Moses, all a matter of record. Leviticus 13, you have detailed instructions as to how to diagnose a leper. And having diagnosed someone as a leper, then what to do with him. So if it was ever thought that someone was getting leprosy, had become a leper, either they themselves or... <laughs> Other people would drag them screaming and kicking to the priest. And the priest had these details, instructions, how to ascertain whether they were indeed a leper, and if it was established they were a leper, then to know what to do with them. That's Leviticus 13. Obviously, they didn't have chapters and verses at that point, but they follow on. Leviticus 14, or immediately after that set of instructions, are very detailed instructions to the priest as to what to do when a leper is healed. So they're told what to do when someone gets leprosy, and then there are instructions to the priest what to do uh, if someone is healed of leprosy, because they believed in healing. They believe that God works miracles. 
and if a leper was healed there be a sacrifice of two birds um, there would then be a seven day investigation to verify the healing now what this meant was this it had to be ascertained one that this person truly was a leper so they had to do all the records from Leviticus 13 is this guy's name down you know, so, so they've got to ascertain this guy is officially classed as a leper according to Leviticus 13 to make sure there's no con or no mistake. And then, if he was, they had to make absolutely sure that the leprosy really had gone. So they had to verify over a seven-day period that the, the, this healing, this claimed healing of a leper had actually happened. Now then, if it passed muster, if it was clear that here, yeah, he was indeed a leper and is indeed healed, or she was indeed a leper and has been indeed healed, then there'd be, um, on the eighth day, there'd be various sacrifices. There'd be a trespass offering and a sin offering, there'd be a burnt offering, and there'd be a, a meal offering. Then, what would happen was, the blood of the, the, the trespass offering uh, would, would then be put on the person's right ear who had been healed and then it would be put on his thumb and then it would be put on his big toe do you know why? no I don't I've never worked it out either if you do please tell me answers on the postcard please I don't know why they did all that but that's what Leviticus 14 said that they had to do and um, you know so, so, so here are these clear instructions now then simple historical point which was not lost on the people who developed this teaching about Messianic miracles Leviticus 13 had been invoked more times in Israel's history than anyone cared to remember. And obviously we're by definition talking about the time after the Mosaic Law was given. Because these are instructions in the Mosaic Law. And Leviticus 13, how to diagnose a leper and what to do with him, had been done more times than anyone cared to remember. Simple historical fact was, no one had ever, no Jew had ever, been healed of leprosy. Leviticus chapter 14, even up to the time of Jesus, had never, ever, ever been invoked. Now then, you could say, oh, Moses was healed from leprosy, Miriam was healed from leprosy. Yes, they were, but these were special cases. I mean, they were both given leprosy for a set time, and then God took it away. And anyway, it was before the law was given at Sinai. And people say, oh yeah, but other people have been healed of leprosy in the Old Testament. Yes, they had, and every one of them was a Gentile. No Jew had ever been healed of leprosy after the Mosaic Law was given. So here you had instructions in the Word of God what to do when a leper who'd been diagnosed according to Leviticus 14, and here we have instructions what to do when a leper's healed. And these instructions had never ever been used and so they said messianic miracle they said they're going to be used one day got to be why would God put them there otherwise so it must be when Messiah comes so the healing of a leper was defined as being a messianic miracle now, let me tell you, along with this messianic miracle thing, uh, obviously they had to have, have a system of verification. Verification was always built into everything that God does, because God is a God of truth. I've got no problem with miracles today. God is a God of miracles. God heals people. But my goodness, aren't we slack in claims of healing? 
Now, everything that God does in the Old Testament is verification, verification, verification. And I'll tell you why. Because God is a God of truth. Simple as that. So therefore, these guys, they, they said, look, we've, we've, we've got to have a, a, a system. What do we do if a messianic miracle is claimed? And what happened was uh, that, that they had a two-stage kind of system that, that kind of went into motion as soon as a messianic miracle was claimed. Now, the, the, the first stage of this kind of investigation was, was called the um, observation stage. And if ever a messianic sign had been claimed, and messianic signs had been claimed before Jesus came on the scene, but none had ever been verified. All right. So, so if a, a, a messianic sign was claimed to have happened, then a delegation of leaders, and these would be top guys, you know, Sanhedrin level, all right, they would be sent to observe the people concerned for seven days. Now, this, this observation stage was precisely that. It was seven days of observation. And the rules were this. These guys could observe, period. They were not allowed to comment. They were not allowed to ask questions. They were merely there to observe, i.e. they could not enter into challenge or dialogue with the people concerned. And this stage was there for one reason only, to establish if indeed a messianic miracle had happened. So they were merely there to observe, is what has been claimed true? Has it actually happened? And this was because people con you. There's often misunderstanding. There are lots of people today, Christians, rather sad, who are under false teaching about healing. And there are Christians who say, I have been healed. When what they're saying is, they've, they, they've bought into a false teaching which says you're healed if you believe you are. So they have to say they're healed or the healing will never happen because they believe what they're not healed of is an illusion almost. So there are always false claims sometimes made for the very best of reasons, but this observation stage was to verify whether what had been claimed had actually happened or whether it was a con or a misunderstanding. Now then, if at the end of that seven days, if these top guys observed and then declared, no, this is not significant, we don't believe anything has happened, it's just, it's just bubble, you know, um, then, then, then the whole thing would just be dropped, period. But... If this first stage, at the end of seven days, if, this guy's, if these guys said, yeah, these miracles are happening, then it was declared to be significant and went into stage two. So we're now messianic investigation, stage two. And stage two was called the interrogation stage. And what happened now was that the, these observers, these top guys, they were now free to ask questions, to raise objections, to challenge, and to dialogue. In, indeed, they knew from Old Testament scripture that Satan can counterfeit things. So therefore, there's, there's all kinds of things, haven't they? You've got to find out, you know, what are these people teaching? Um, are they immoral? Are they living a... You know, that, that whole thing, you've, you've got to find out. So dialogue, you know, are there any skeletons in the cupboard we need to know about? That kind of thing. So then that would kick in, and then this delegation would begin the questioning and the challenging.
Now, if you go to Luke chapter 5, this is where things that never made sense to you. Just things you thought, hmm, why does it say that? Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 16. Oh, I'm in Mark 5, I need Luke 5. Right. Luke 5, 12 to 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, this is real early on in his public ministry. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, firstly, notice, what does it tell us about this leper? Yeah, but more than that, who has he got faith in? He believes Jesus is the Messiah. Why else would he bother to say, can you heal me of leprosy? This guy, unlearned, you know, he's been taught by all the powers that be, the people who know best, that only Messiah can heal him. He believes Jesus is the Messiah. And he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hands and touched the man and said, I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That's a healing. That's a healing. That's what I want to see again. Wow. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, people say, you know, sometimes Jesus said, go tell everyone. Sometimes he said, don't tell everyone. And you get all convoluted ideas. But the reason is that the law of Moses and Jesus as a Jew before he died was under the law of Moses, as was this leper. The law of Moses says you go to the priest. So Jesus is in obedience to the law of Moses. He says to the bloke, look, now go to the priest. That's what the word of God says. I've healed you, go to the priest. And when Jesus sent this guy to the priest, what did Jesus know? He knew that this would set off a messianic investigation into him. That's what Jesus was doing. Okay. That's why he told this guy to go and do it. And so in regards to this, Jesus having healed this guy uh, and it says the news about him spread all the more crowds of people came to hear him why suddenly is everyone coming out of the woodwork messianic sign has been claimed Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed because from this point onwards everyone's flocking because of this messianic sign that's been done <clears throat> now then in verse 17 the next verse look at this this is another incident very soon after us. But look, one day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. Why is it that suddenly Jesus is surrounded by all the experts? Why are all the bigwigs there? This is the beginning of the Messianic investigation. And it begins with the interrogation stage. Go down to verse 21. What happens here is that a paralytic is brought down through the roof and Jesus does this, your sins are forgiven, and then, you know, get up and walk. Okay. But listen to this, verse 21. This is where Jesus has said to this guy, your sins are forgiven. Right. Now listen to verse 21. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves. They're not saying it. They're thinking it. Why are they thinking it? Investigation stage, the Messianic investigation, the observation stage was silent. They could not engage in 
dialogue. As simple as that. And so they're thinking to themselves. Uh, but then, if you go down into verse 30, and this is a good bit later, all right, this is a couple of weeks later, another incident, and it says, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples. Now they're challenging. Now they're dialoguing. Why? Because this messianic investigation has proved significant. And it's gone into stage two, the interrogation stage. Why has it gone into stage two? Well, because the particular messianic sign they're dealing with has been verified by the priest who the leper went to according to Matthew 13 and 14. See? So now Jesus has, from the start of his ministry, the undivided attention of all the religious bigwigs in Israel. And this is what Jesus is doing. Now, isn't it interesting, just to you know, sort of chuck this in, that, that, that this bit where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are thinking to themselves, this, this guy has come down through the roof and he's paralysed, and Jesus says, you know, your, your sins are forgiven. And, and here's this messianic interrogation delegation sitting there, thinking, not saying, but thinking, ah, uh, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? They're thinking something. And Jesus said, oh, let me answer that. Well, that's pretty messianic, isn't it? Can you see? I'm trying to show you Israel had no doubts at all who Jesus was. We'll be back to that shortly. Another messianic sign um, was said to be the casting out of dumb demons. Now, let me just explain this. Pharisaic exorcism had three constituent parts. This isn't what the Bible says. They didn't get this from the Bible. This is Pharisaic Judaism. But the Pharisees taught that in order to cast a demon out, you had to firstly establish verbal communication with the demon. All right? Um, you know, you have to talk to them. You know, get some rapping going. Having got the dialogue with the demon going, you then find out what its name is. And having found out what its name is, you cast it out using its name. Now you know where the charismatic movement got it from. Not from the Bible, it's Pharisaic Judaism. I mean, I've cast out enough demons to know that you don't need to get into talk with them, you don't need to find their names out. Even further, they ain't got names. You just cast them out in the name of Jesus. This is a formula that is extra-biblical, alright. But, here's the problem. If you've got a demon, and notice as well, with demons, what was Jesus' approach? He told them to shut up. He never talked to them. And whenever they talked to him, he told them to shut up. And, and I mean, people say, yeah, but, you know, the gathering demoniacs, and Jesus says, what is your name? Look, there it is. Well, if there was any other instance of Jesus using the Pharisaic formula, I'd agree. But let me put this to you. He says, what is your name? And then the demon comes out with all this rubbish. Well, I wonder if Jesus was just asking the guy's name. And then the demon spoke. See? Jesus always told demons to shut up. Okay. But the point is, this is how you cast a demon out according to Pharisaic Judaism. Now then, what happens if you've got a demon whose effect on someone is that you don't let them speak? And the demon don't speak. So you say, Hello? Silence. Ah, oh, I've got a bad one here. Hello? Is, is there anybody in there? 
I know you're in there. What's your name? The demon won't talk. You're stuffed. You see, because if you don't know what its name is, you can't cast it out. So, Pharisaic Judaism met its match in demons who would not speak to them. Imagine the demons having a field day. I marvel, I marvel at a larger part of Christian demonology today is based on what people have ascertained from demons while they're casting them out. And the whole thing is bunk. It's bunk. If people demonise in the name of Jesus, we can cast the demons out. But to take anything a demon says? My Bible says he's a liar. So, you know, period. But the point is, here, you're trying to cast out a demon that won't speak to you. You're dependent on finding out what its name is. You're stuffed. Therefore, Pharisaic Judaism defines the casting out of a dumb demon as being messianic. They said, Messiah will be able to cast demons out who won't speak to you. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Find verse 22. And it says this, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man. Let's just for a moment scrub that real bad. That is not what the Bible says. You cannot be possessed by a demon. The Greek word simply says demonized. And I'll tell you why you cannot be possessed. No one can be possessed by a demon. Because demons can't possess anyone. Shall I tell you who everyone belongs to? The Lord. And when believers come to know the Lord, he says, where are people for his possession? If you possess something, you can control it. A demon cannot control someone so that they can't anymore, you know, respond to the Lord. It's a nonsense. I mean, that Gadarene demoniac, you can't get further into demonization than he was, but he had absolutely no problem at all when confronted with Jesus, did he? He was in his right mind. You see? So, this, this demon possession has got more to do with Hollywood. Yeah, demons can be inside people and affect them to varying degrees, but not, not possession. No one can ever say a demon made me do it. That's crazy. God possesses us. I'm very glad to be possessed by the Lord. And, but, but they brought to him a demonized man, that's what the Greek says, who was blind and mute. So this guy was blind, but also this demon, he, could, he didn't speak. So therefore, here was someone demonized in a way that Pharisaic Judaism could do nothing about. Now then, Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now listen to this. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? What's the significance of that title, the son of David? Messiah. Jesus has cast out a dumb demon. Israel had been taught by their leaders that only Messiah could do this. So they're saying, oh, is this Messiah? You see. And, uh, and, and then in all this, you've got the Pharisees who step in, because this is the interrogation stage. They're challenging. But here's another. I mean, they haven't finished investigating the healing of the leper. Now they've got another one to deal with, all right? And they're challenging away. And they say, no, he casts it out by the power of Satan, by Beelzebub, which was a stupid thing to say. I mean, it was just off. But the point is, here is where Israel blasphemes the Holy Spirit. Now notice, these leaders have seen another messianic miracle. They know 
that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has proved himself to be the Messiah, not just by Old Testament teaching and prophecy, but by their extra-biblical teaching as well. And yet, knowing that he was their Messiah, they tried to put him down as being an agent of Satan. And that is when you get the blasphemy against the spirit thing. And I put it to you that the blasphemy against the spirit, and all you've got to do is to talk to any knowledgeable Christian who is also a Jew and knows their background as a Jew as well as their New Testament teaching, and they will have no doubt what the blasphemy against the spirit is. It was the national rejection of Jesus by Israel knowing that he was the Messiah. And it was there that Israel got the chop, that Israel was going to be replaced by the church. The vineyard would be taken from Israel and given to other tenants. And those other tenants were the Gentiles. Now, Israel will be back in the future. God hasn't finished with Israel. Promises to Israel will yet be fulfilled. But this was what the blasphemy against the Spirit was. Israel here as a nation gets the chop. Um, another so-called messianic sign was um, the healing of someone who was born blind. Not someone who had become blind, but someone who was born blind. Go to John chapter 9. John's Gospel, chapter 9. Read... Um, Read the, the first seven verses. I might skip some of it, just, just because of time. But um, as he went along, he, Jesus, saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Has that ever occurred to anyone to be a bit of a silly question? Uh, he was born blind, so who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Well, they believed that illness or anything like that could be the result of judgment on sin. But... Born blind, this sin happened before the man was born. And, they, and, and, and the disciples saying, Jesus, who sinned, the man who was born blind or his parents? Hasn't that ever made you think, ugh? Let me tell you, Pharisaic Judaism taught that a fetus could sin. The Old Testament didn't teach that, Pharisaic Judaism did. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents. Uh, verse 6, having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now go to verse 29. Because uh, what happens is, this guy is now dragged before the, um, all the Jewish leaders who are investigating. Oh no, now we've got another one. I mean, they're still investigating the kind of like the healing of the leper and, 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 and then they've had the casting out of a dumb demon and, and oh, now, now he's gone and healed someone born blind. I mean, it's coming at them from every direction. And they grab this bloke and obviously all they're trying to do now, this is not an honest investigation. They're trying to blacken Jesus. They're trying to persuade people that he isn't the Messiah, even though Jesus has proved to them that he is. And in verse 28, it says, They hurled insults at him. This is the guy who's been healed. You are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. Blah, blah. And then the verse 30, look at this. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. The man said, Well, you don't know where he comes You taught me. The only Messiah could do this. He comes from heaven. What's wrong with you all? They throw him out. Because he's calling them on the very teaching they had given Israel. 
Now, can you see the whole point? And then he goes on, verse 32, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And remember also, the man said, God doesn't hear sinners. Now, he's not saying that God won't work a miracle if a sinner prays for one. He's talking about a messianic sign. So he says, Jesus isn't a sinner. He's the Messiah. Can you see? Now, look, in regards to these things, okay, the, 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 the healing of the leper, the, the casting out of a dumb demon, and, uh, you know, sort of like this healing of the man born blind. Now, when you, when you look at the miracles of Jesus, when he worked miracles, they quite rightly got a, wow! Wow! He's just fed 5,000 plus people with a couple of fish. Or, oh my good. Gosh, he's walking on the water. Ah, and it, all these miracles. Oh, he's, he's healed a paralytic. Wow. But, when you get to the healing of the leper, when you get to the casting out of a dumb demon, when you get to the healing of a man born blind, you don't get a wow from the people. You get a wow, wow. It's Messiah. Now, can you see the distinctive reactions of people to these miracles? It's because they were messianic miracles. Now then, Jesus proved to the Pharisees, to Israel, not just by Old Testament prophecy, but by fulfilling some of their own teachings that defined how you would know who Messiah was. So Jesus proved himself Biblically to be the Messiah and extra-biblically according to some of their stuff. And incidentally, this thing about Jesus, did people know he was the Messiah or not? Just put these Messianic miracles to one side, alright? Now then, you can't understand the Bible till you think Jewish. By which, you can only understand it because you've got to know what it meant to the guys who were hearing it all and in the Gospels they were Jews. Now then, the Jews, Israel knew full well that if it went back to the prophecies of Daniel and stuff like that, that there were prophecies in Daniel that not only... Well, the prophecies of Daniel dated closely the coming of Messiah. The prophecy of the 70 weeks gives the time span when Messiah will be born. Other prophecies located where Messiah was going to be born. All right. So the point is, about this time that Jesus was ministering, People who knew the Old Testament knew that this is around the time Messiah came and he's going to be born in Bethlehem and stuff like that. And anyone could have, uh, you know, researched and found out where Jesus came from. Now then, in Jesus we have a man who is claiming to be Messiah who also managed to get born, not just at the right time, according to Old Testament prophecy, but in the right place. What say did you get? What date you were born and where you were born? Not a lot. Jesus did. But on top of all that, and the Jews knew that. They knew he was their Messiah. But on top of that, he's proving it to them by all these uh, kind of messianic miracle teaching and things as well. So it's, 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 it's as simple as that. Now, we've got to ask... Here is Israel kind of knowing that Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is proving it, it to them every which way, as you say over here. Now, the question we're wanting to look at is this. 
with like all these unbiblical traditions, this tradition of the elders, what was Jesus' response to it? So, when Jesus hit up against traditions that not only didn't come from God's word, but went against it, what was his response? Now then, in the tradition of the elders, there were, there were traditions that were neutral. They didn't matter one way or the other. And here and there, you can pick out certain things that Jesus observed. They were from the tradition of the elders, but they didn't in any way go against the word of God. He wasn't worried about them. But we're talking about the traditions that go against the word of God. All right. What was Jesus' response? Now, logically, there are only three ways he could have responded to it. The first way is this. He could have responded in such a way that we would have to conclude that he agreed with Israel. Did Jesus respond in such a way as to to make us think that he he accepted these traditions and, uh, you know, bowed down to them? Did Jesus think these traditions were inspired? Well, the answer is no. I mean, we've seen that quite clearly. The second possibility of how Jesus responded was to indicate that he didn't believe they were inspired, but to do everything he could to respect them and tread round them very carefully and not upset anyone. Status quo. Oh, well, they think those things are biblical. I'll just leave them to it. Was that his response? I'm going to show you it wasn't, and I'm going to show you very clearly. The third thing is this. Did Jesus not only not accept that these traditions were divine, did he fight against them and declare war on them as being an evil? And I'm going to demonstrate to you that that is what Jesus did. I'm going to show you beyond doubt that Jesus' tactic with these traditions was to go against, I'm not talking about the neutral ones, but any of the traditions that went against the word of God Jesus declared war on them and broke them not only whenever he could but as publicly and as provocatively as he could. Hold on to your hats now. Go back, well you should still be in John 9. The man born blind. Messianic miracle. We've already established that. Now, Notice certain things. We're asking, did Jesus deliberately break these traditions and go against them? Now look at verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Now do you remember that I told you in the last talk that the Pharisees have 1,500 extra laws for what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath? One of those things was that you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. There was one exception to that. It was okay to heal miraculously on the Sabbath if it was a matter of life and death. If a person was likely to actually die before the Sabbath had ended, then it was okay to heal them. But obviously, with an instance of a man born blind, he's not going to die of it, is he? He's lived his whole life blind. So, the very fact that Jesus healed this guy, performed a messianic miracle on a Sabbath, was the most provocative thing he could have done. The Sabbath was Israel's most sacred law. In fact, the Pharisees taught that the universe existed for the Sabbath. 
they elevated the Sabbath to be the most important thing in the universe, second only to God himself. And here, Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. He breaks one of their most sacred laws. Now, you could respond by saying, yeah, but hang on, Beresford. Of course he did in this instance. It was compassion. I mean, obviously, Jesus was... He would have rather it wasn't the Sabbath. But, but here was the bloke, you know, in front... So, so, so compassion demanded that Jesus act on the Sabbath. But Jesus would have rather not. He would have rather not upset them. He would have rather been very ginger about it. Okay, look at verse 6. Having said this, he spat on the ground, this is Jesus, and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, and it's the mud. There's something very, very important about the mud. Because I grant you that compassion in Jesus would have obviously demanded that he heal the man immediately. So therefore, Jesus couldn't help but break the tradition of the elders insofar as when he healed him. But the thing to grab hold of is that Jesus was completely free as to how he healed the man. He could have done it in any number of ways. He could have laid hands on him. Could have just, you know, blown on him. That's a favourite in the charismatic movement. You blow on someone and they fall over. I suppose Jesus could have done that if he was a charismatic, but I don't think he was. I'm, I'm, I speak in tongues. I've got no problem with the gifts of the Spirit. But the charismatic movement is too much for me. Um, but, but, but the point was Jesus could have healed this bloke, even if we grant he had no choice as to the timing. Compassion. He had every choice as to how he healed him. And what Jesus decided to do was spit on the ground, mix the mud and the clay into a spittle, and then put it on this bloke's eyes. Now, have you ever wondered why he did it like that? Let me read to you from Tractate Shabbat, the 108th kind of bit of it, verse 20. Uh, this is in the second section of the... Um, Mishnah, and it says this, to heal a blind man on the Sabbath, it is prohibited. Now, let me say, there are one or two translation difficulties at this point with the Mishnah, but it doesn't affect in the slightest what I'm saying. To heal a blind man on the Sabbath, it is prohibited to inject wine into his eyes. It is also prohibited to make mud from spittle and smear it on his eyes my goodness now look this is what legalism does in looking at these traditions of the elders we're looking at legalism legalism being the definition of imposing more on people than the word of God does license which is the equally evil is when people don't live under as much as the Bible says they should but legalism is when you put more on people than the Bible actually does you see and of course all this tradition stuff is more than what the Bible teaches it's legalism and legalism always goes mad and what we have here is we find in the tradition of the elders that not only does it specify that it is, um, that it is wrong 
to heal a blind man on the Sabbath because being blind is not life-threatening. So by definition, healing a blind man on the Sabbath is wrong. It breaks the law of the tradition of the elders. But it said not only does this tradition say you mustn't heal someone on the Sabbath, it then goes on to say, and then you mustn't heal them like this. This is a bit like saying, look, Christians mustn't smoke. And they mustn't smoke Marlborough. <laughs> but this is what legalism does. It just goes mad. And so the thing is that here, we see that not only is it forbidden to heal a blind man on the Sabbath, but there are particular ways that you mustn't heal him. And Jesus healed him using one of the methods that was specifically forbidden by the tradition of the elders. So, what we have here is clear evidence that Jesus is deliberately breaking the tradition of the elders. He is being provocative. He is using opportunities to go against it. And here he, he performs what the tradition of the elders itself defined as a messianic miracle but does so in such a way that he breaks the tradition as to the way he does it. So not only here does Jesus heal at a forbidden time, he heals in a forbidden way. And he does this knowing that the eyes of the Sanhedrin are already on him, because he has already worked other messianic miracles which they are in process of investigating. But there is more. In verse 7 we read this, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And what's significant, the guy was healed when he washed in the pool of Siloam. The miracle happened not where Jesus was. The miracle happened at the pool of Siloam. Now, if you do your homework and cross-reference all this with chapter 7, you'll realise that this miracle happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. And on this particular day, one of the things that they did is that the laver in the temple was filled with water. And the way it was filled with water is they had these massive jugs which they brought into the temple and poured the water in the laver. Do you know, can you guess, where they got the water from? the pool of Siloam, just outside the temple. Now, here, the focus of everyone is on the pool of Siloam because of this ritual. Everyone would have known that this guy was born blind from birth. He would have been known. He, he would have been a beggar. So in front of all these big wigs, wigs already investigating Jesus on all these counts, comes a man who they know is born blind, he comes down to the pool of Siloam and he washes spittle and mud off of his eyes. Into the pool. Absolutely. In every possible count. And then they realise Jesus again. So Jesus heals this bloke not only at a forbidden time, not only in a forbidden way, but does so that at the actual point of healing, the bloke is in the most public place of interest in Jerusalem at that moment. This is Jesus declaring open warfare on the tradition of the elders, exposing it for what it was, 
anti-biblical error. And of course, at the same time, he's exposing the Pharisees themselves. Go back to Luke chapter 5. We were there earlier, Luke chapter 5. Now then, find verse 27. Luke 5, verse 27. Let's just remind you where we are here. (coughs) Jesus has healed the leper, the first Messianic miracle. The investigation period has started. The paralytic is led down through, you know, let down through the roof. Jesus not only claims authority to heal his sin, uh, to forgive his sins, which was Messianic as well, he demonstrates that he can forgive his sins by then healing him. All right. And this is the point, and they start thinking this man um, is uh, committing blasphemy. Okay. Now then, we know, okay, that this has set off all the guys are there in the kind of observation stage. We, at the end of the incident we're going to look at now, we see them challenging his disciples, so we know now it's moved into the observation stage. Right? Now then, look what happens. So, this is just at the point where Jesus has got the collective attention of all the religious leaders. So, we're in Luke 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Remember, all the leaders are looking on. They're following him around. They're stuck with him. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And then we get the Pharisees challenging the disciples and then Jesus said, look, it's not the, it's not the, I I came for the sick, you know, and and, and I've come for sinners, not the righteous. But look, What is the first thing that Jesus does relative to calling people to follow him after he set off the investigations? Now then, let me tell you that according to the tradition of the elders, obviously Gentiles, you had as little to do with them as possible. But the tradition of the elders taught that there were two classes of fellow Jews with whom you had nothing to do. The first category were tax collectors, because these were the guys, they were collecting taxes for the occupied Roman troops, for the occupying Roman troops. They were seen as turncoats, but not only that, they were conning their fellow Jews. They were skimming off the top all the time. They were hated. And the tradition of the elders said that you do not have anything to do with a tax collector. The other group of Jews that the tradition of the elders forbade you to have anything to do with was prostitutes. Now, What Jesus does now, with all the religious leaders looking on, he's got their undivided attention because of the messianic miracles he's working. He calls a tax collector to follow him. Major transgression of the tradition of the elders. But then, Jesus goes and has dinner. He goes to a banquet thrown in his honour where Zacchaeus gets all, uh, sorry, Levi, gets all his friends. And Jesus goes and has dinner with them. Now let me ask you a question. If you live in a society where the people who no one will have anything to do with are tax collectors and prostitutes, which means you're one of them, tax collector, 
and you have a banquet, a party, and you invite all your friends, who are the only two groups of people who are going to be there? Other tax collectors along with prostitutes. Jesus is enjoying a meal with the two groups of people in Israel that the traditions of the elders forbade you to have anything to do with. And the religious leaders are looking on and they are getting mad. Because Jesus is in open warfare against their treasured traditions that they consider to be more authoritative than the Old Testament. Even though it means having nothing to do with some of the very people who need to know God's love and salvation more than anyone else. The total dregs in society. Because, of course, the Pharisees were self-righteous. You see? This is anti-biblical in every possible way. Go, go back to... Um, uh, no, go forward to Luke 6. Now then, remember some of the fence laws we saw last time. Do you remember? No reaping, no threshing, no winnowing, and no storing. And of course, all that means is you can't walk alongside a field on the Sabbath. Now then, look at this. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, this is just after he's called Levi. He's had dinner with all the prostitutes. He has got their attention. And of course, he's peppering it all along with other messianic miracles here and there. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. Now just picture it. Jesus says, hey guys, it's a Sabbath. Let's walk through a cornfield. See? And his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, reaping, rub them in their hands, which will thresh and winnow, and eat the grain. Story. They're here breaking five Sabbath laws. Walking in the field, <coughs> reaping, threshing, winnowing, story. And they're doing it because Jesus said, hey guys, let's go and break some laws. Let's go and break some of Israel's most cherished traditions. That's what we're going to do today, guys. This is part of your discipleship. You've got to be able to do it as well. You can't leave all this law-breaking stuff to me. Because I'm going to send you out when I go back to heaven. You've got to do it on your own. I'll be with you in the spirit, but you've got to... see." Jesus is here training his disciples in how to break Israel's most treasured anti-biblical laws and traditions. And look, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, I truly believe when Luke wrote that, that under the inspiration of the Spirit, he censored it. Because I'm sure that ain't exactly what they said. They were mad at him. I mean, by now they have decided. What, what had they decided by now? We're going to kill him. We're going to murder him. You know, and sometimes colourful language goes with murderous thoughts. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> so I don't believe they exactly said that. They said something similar, but I think it was peppered with um, some other stuff. Here, look, we're seeing 
that Jesus is just going against this in every way that he can. And then he goes on and he, he just calls them hypocrites. Just go down into verse 6. On another Sabbath, I mean, this is just a catalogue of all the things. The Sabbath was a very special day to Jesus. It was the day of greatest anarchy. <laughs> he got to break more anti-biblical laws on the Sabbath than any other day. He loved it. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Have you ever wondered why? Because that's against the tradition of the elders. And of course, what does Jesus do? He knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, I mean, they're shrinking here because he's speaking. Because he's teaching, right? But he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up in front of everyone. <laughs> I mean, he couldn't just wait till afterwards. You see, Jesus is being as provocative as he knows how. He's making this a public issue. Because the point is, if you don't expose where the bondage is at any one time, you're not exposing the bondage that God wants to free people from. I mean, you know, what's, what, what's, what's the point of going into a monastery? And trying to expose prostitution. See? And I think it was Spurgeon who said that if we're not if we're not standing in the word of God, if we're not standing by the word of God at precisely the point it's being gone against, then we're not standing with the word of God at all. And Jesus is after this, because this is what matters. This is the problem in Israel. And so therefore Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? And Jesus is saying, look, what's the best thing to do? What God wants or what you want? What you want goes against God. What's the best thing to do? And so, as we see, he looked round at them and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and the hand was restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And it wasn't given the medal. This is when they determined that this man is going to die because he's just too much of a threat. Go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Right. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Again, remember, all eyes are on Jesus. These investigations going on and on and on. And any time Jesus thought they might be losing interest, he worked another miracle and made them start all over again. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now let me read from um, Sotar 4b. This is a Mishnah, and you'll find this in Chala 58 as well. I'm quoting from the Mishnah. One should be willing to walk four miles to water in order to wash their hands, rather than to eat with unwashed hands. So the tradition of the elders said that you can't eat. If there's water within four miles, you've got to go and wash your hands first. Right? Give you an appetite, if nothing else, wouldn't it? And then, he who neglects hand washing is as he who is a murderer I'll read that again just in case you missed it 
He who neglects hand washing is as he who is a murderer. Jesus here is living with his disciples. They're not washing their hands before they eat. In such a way that what they're doing is considered to be as serious as murder. Jesus is doing it with all of Israel looking on. And this is when we get... And I think now, this incredibly well-known verse, I think will now mean to you what it actually means. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And then Jesus goes on to give another illustration of another tradition of the elder, the laws of Korban, which I don't have time to go into. Yes, I do. What the laws of Korban, he moves on to say, For God said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses father or mother must be put to death. That's the tradition of the elders. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, Korban. He is not to honour his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Under the tradition of the elders, you could declare your money and goods to be korban, dedicated to God. And what would happen is it would be paid into the temple treasury, sort of thing. And from that point onwards, no one can make any demands on it at all, so it's given to God. However, you can get it back later. So you can take it back out of the treasury. It gets used, you know, a bit like a banking system. And then you can come get it later. So what people were doing was this. When their parents were becoming aged and expensive, they give all their spare money into the temple treasury. And they could say, my money's korban. It's given to God. I, I can't take care of my parents. And then when they died, they went and took it out again and spent it. See? There were all these kind of things. The tradition of the elders defined home as where your possessions are. Now, it developed a distance from which you can't travel from home on the Sabbath. One of these extra Sabbath laws. And it was all based on the, 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 the distance between the camp and the tabernacle when uh, Israel was um, uh, going through the wilderness. And um, what basically they, um, they said is that they, they'd have this distance beyond which you can't go. I think it was a, about a mile. It was that kind of dif- distance. So, on the Sabbath, the law says, or the tradition of the elders, you, 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 you can only go a mile from home. But it also defined that home is where your possessions are. Now, if you've got a Jewish businessman, and sort of the Sabbath, remember for them it was sunset Friday to, you know, like 24 hours later. It's different, okay. But say, say, say the day after the, or the Sabbath ends in the evening... And then the next morning, you want to be somewhere for business. All right? But the point is, you've got to be a good way along to get there in time. But of course, you can't go anywhere on the Sabbath. You can only go a mile from home. Now, the rich businessmen and, and, kind of, you know, and the Pharisees... Remember, Jesus said the Pharisees love money. That was, Jesus said that. That is true of the Pharisees. They love money. So what they do the day before... Or during that day that the Sabbath began, and the day before... They'd send out servants to wherever it is they were going to do business the day after the Sabbath. And they send their servants out to, to, to stand at one mile intervals. So that after the service in the temple, still the Sabbath, they could then begin their journey for where they're going to be trading the following morning. 
and they could set out early after the temple services. And because their servants whoops, were lining the route at one mile intervals, and because home is where your possessions are, they could travel 20 miles and they were never further than one mile from home. See? This is, this is the kind of stuff. And, and it, it's just, you know, this is what unbiblical tradition does. It goes straight against what the Word of God says. But getting round things on a technicality and saying, this is okay, God's leading us to do it, when it's actually completely against what the Scripture says. Just, just go to Luke 17 now. Now this is um, towards the end of Jesus' ministry. The cross, his murder, is uh, looming large. And uh, let's read Luke 17, verse 11 to 14. This will have more significance for you now. In a, in a load of ways, as you read your New Testament, you'll understand more. Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it is said. You have heard that it is written. But I say to you, it is said, the oral law, traditions of the elders, written, the Old Testament. See? In loads of things, it will just become clear to you. Anyway, Luke 17, verse 11. Um, ah, yes. Now, on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. See, they were Samaritans, but they were Jews. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then, of course, one comes back to say thank you, doesn't he? But look, look what's happening here. The cross is looming large. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the top guys, what are they concentrating on now? They don't want to be hanging out around Jesus too much because they're busy concentrating on something else. They're concentrating on how to murder him. And so at this point, Jesus now heals ten lepers. He works ten messianic miracles in one day, sends them to the priest, setting off Ten lots of messianic investigations. And these blokes who just want to be left alone so they can work out how to kill him have to start all over again with ten more messianic miracles. Now can you see, throughout Jesus' ministry, he does not release the religious leaders. He keeps them by his side. He is forcing them based on their teachings, not his. The, the Old Testament law was written by the finger of God. And uh, who, who's the finger, whose finger was it? It's Jesus in his pre-existence. He's forcing them by their laws, not his, to be there listening all the time to his teaching, to his message, to his exposure of them, and Jesus did berate the Pharisees. But can you see, behind it all is his grace. He's wanting to bring them to repentance. He's wanting to keep them under the, 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 the umbrella of 
the, the best evangelistic ministry you'll ever come across. Jesus himself. Because that's how much he loved them. But at the same time, he was having to expose them publicly as well. Because the people had been misled by them. And if you want people to come out from religious bondage, you have to also do a certain amount of exposing of the false teachers who put them under it in the first place. Indeed, in the New Testament, Paul writes to Christians and says that they have to expose that which is darkness. It's not the nicest thing to have to do, but that is part and parcel of any prophetic thrust. There is building up, but there has to be tearing down first. Incidentally, let me just um, tell you a little bit about something. The only time that Jesus ever was challenged on the basis of the law of Moses, I've shown you that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was over the tradition of the elders. Jesus did not keep that. They did, he didn't. But the challenge was not over the law of Moses because uh, Jesus kept the law of Moses. Now, the only occasion that Jesus was challenged over the law of Moses was the incident of the woman caught in adultery. And do you remember, they brought this woman and they said, look, she'd been caught in adultery. Now, they were quite bright. You've got to hand it to the Pharisees. They were quite clever. Because what they were trying to do is they were putting Jesus in a position where whatever he did, he'd be in big trouble. So, so they bring this woman and they say, look, she was caught in adultery. She should be put to death. Now, if Jesus had said, yes, that's right, she must be put to death, they could have brought Rome on them. Because, well, on him. Because whenever Rome occupied a nation, it withdrew from them the right of capital punishment. Israel didn't have the right of capital punishment. That's why the Pharisees had to go cap in hand to Pilate. They had to trick Pilate into having him killed, you see. So if Jesus had said, yes, she could be put to death, they could have gone to the Romans, who didn't give a monkeys about Jesus. They couldn't have cared less. As long as there was peace and quiet and they were getting their taxes, they didn't give them monkeys about a messianic movement. All right. But if they'd have heard that someone was preaching we must have the death penalty on the basis of the Old Testament law, that would have brought the Romans down on Jesus because they would have seen that as treason. You know, He'd have been a big political troublemaker. But if the Pharisees could have got Jesus to not do that, but say, no, don't put her to death, they could have said, he's gone against the law of Moses. Can't be Messiah. So that's quite clever, wasn't it? You've got to remember who they're up against. Because they bring this woman. Now, look, a woman is caught in adultery, and she's brought before Jesus for judgment. Um, how many does it take to commit adultery? Well, at least <laughs> two. Where was the bloke? So it's a setup. They should have brought the bloke as well, but they just brought the woman. And what's interesting is during that, so here they are, they're trying to trip Jesus up on the law of Moses. Now, do you remember what Jesus did? He knelt down, he, he drew in the sand with his finger. People was think, what did he write? What did he write? See, now look, here they are, the only time they've ever bothered to try and trip him up on the law of Moses, and Jesus must have thought, they'll never learn. They'll never learn. They're going to try and trip me up on my own laws now. And so he starts writing in the sand with his finger. Uh, well, the Old Testament said that the commandments were written by the finger of God. 
saying, look, this, this is the finger that wrote this law you're trying to trip me up on, hey? And of course, he just takes the approach, and it's a very sensible approach, that built in to the Old Testament was the fact that with any kind of justice, the law could not be used unjustly. And uh, it, was, it was very interesting, their judicial system. If someone was, 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 was found guilty of a, a capital crime, which this was, then the accusers, they had to be put to death by stoning, and the accusers had to throw the stones. So the, the, the witnesses were the executioners. Also, you had to be innocent of the crime that that person is being killed for. And um, not only that, um, but if if someone committed perjury, then then whatever punishment the person received on their testimony, they had to do it as well. So if you were found to have perjured yourself as a witness in a capital offence and someone had been stoned, you would get stoned. So there are all these things built into the law as well. And uh, and do you remember when Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone? Now, that is not, as people try and use this thing about, you must never say that something's wrong. Oh, let him without sin. You know, as if you've got to be perfect. That's ridiculous. We are called as believers to judge. There is wrong judgment, but we are called to judge. It is okay to say something's wrong, as long as you're doing it in the right way, in the right attitude, and and that what you're saying is wrong is wrong, if you see what I mean. But, uh, you know, but the point is, what Jesus is saying there, and they knew what he was saying, right? He's saying, um, okay, yeah, well, um, you're the accusers, you're the witnesses, you caught her. Um, so those of you who are without sin, those of you who haven't um, committed adultery, you, you start. And it says they all went away one by one. From the oldest first down to the youngest. The young, the young folks are cockier. <laughs> They'd all committed adultery. It was inherent in what Jesus said to them. All right, those of you who haven't done this, you throw the first stone. (coughs) And they knew that he knew that they were adulterers as well. Off they slunk. Isn't that incredible? They were up against Jesus and they knew it. And they hated him for it. So what have we seen? We've seen that Israel developed a system, a religious system, that enabled them to go against the word of God while still appearing superficially to be in obedience to it. So they were going against what the Bible said, but in such a way that they were claiming divine authority for doing so. And we must ask, what is Jesus' verdict on his people who do that? And the verdict is hypocrisy. Jesus said that they were being hypocrites. Did Jesus respect these traditions that enabled them to go against the word of God? No. He hated the traditions that called them, caused them to go against the word of God. Did he leave them well alone so as not to cause offence? No. He exposed it. He condemned it. He provocatively declared war on it as publicly as he possibly could. And why? Because if you have traditions that are going against the word of God, then they are preventing people going with the word of God. For those who are causing people to submit to these traditions, 
then those people are leading people into disobedience. For the people being caused to go against traditions in ignorance, or to go against the word of God in ignorance because of their leaders, the Lord wants to set them free so that they can go with the word of God. And so that is why Jesus took such a tough line against it. The Lord wants extra-biblical teachings and practices that go against his written word to be opposed and to be renounced. (coughs) That is clear in this conflict that we've seen with Jesus. Neutral stuff, no problem. But stuff that causes you to go against the word of God. The Lord wants it opposed and he wants it exposed and he wants it renounced. Now then, finishing this talk now, but I wonder if you can see where we're going next. It's very easy for us as Christians to say, silly old Israel, all those naughty Jews, oh, that's dreadful. What? They had all these traditions and teachings that went against what the Old Testament said? Um, and, 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 And not only that, but they said that God was leading them to do it? That's dreadful. (coughs) Goodness, no wonder God rejected them. Well, in the next talk, I'm going to start showing you that the Christian church, within a hundred years of Jesus being born, proceeded to do and has done ever since exactly the same thing. I'll leave that one there. For more information, contact the Chigwell Christian Fellowship on our website at www.house-church.org.